Charges. I mean, 
Why is Luke spending so much time on this part of the story? Well, on the one hand, he's building a case for Paul's innocence, isn't he? That's pretty obvious. And, and in doing so, Luke is showing uh, that not just Paul, but, but the church itself is innocent of, of any accusations that are being thrown against it as being perhaps bad for the state or bad for society. But, but you know, more than that, we need to remember that Luke is writing his two-volume work, what we call the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. He's writing this two-volume work to his young friend, Theophilus. And he's writing so that Theophilus and other Christians like him might have certainty concerning the things they've been taught. That's what Luke says in the beginning of this whole work of chapter 1. In other words, this is a work of discipleship. And so there are important things that we're meant to see in these chapters so that our grasp of the faith might grow deeper and more secure. And I think one of the things that we see dealt with here in chapter 25 along these lines is the issue of injustice. After all, is it the injustice of the world and the injustice that we based on our own lives, one of the things that can shake our faith. When things aren't right, we can often wonder whether there's any substance to what we believe. So let's take a look at how this theme unfolds in chapter 25 so that we might grow in our certainty concerning the things we're taught. And I think as we open up this chapter, the first thing that we see is this. Don't let injustice shake your faith. Don't let injustice shake your faith. When chapter 25 opens, did you catch that? Paul has been in prison for two years. And for no other reason than the fact that Felix was waiting for a bribe. Paul is the victim of injustice. There's no real case against him, if you've been following him. The authorities in Jerusalem are trying to condemn him for flouting the law, defiling the temple, causing civil unrest, but they can't prove any of these charges. They don't have a single witness to bring before Felix or Festus here in 25. And Felix knows that none of these charges are true back in 24, but he leaves Paul in prison anyway, hoping to get some money out of Paul or his friends. And that goes on for two years, and Felix finally is replaced by Festus. You know, historically we know that Festus wasn't very much liked by the Jews. So they ended up uh, petitioning Rome to have him removed. They sent a delegation to the capital, made their case, and Felix was fired. So Festus gets the job. Not exactly the kind of shoes you want to be following him. And as soon as Festus arrives around 59 AD, the authorities in Jerusalem are making their move against Paul once more. Again, plotting to kill him in an ambush, just like they tried back in chapter of course, again, there's a deep irony here, isn't there, that the ones who are so zealous for the purity of the law are actually more than willing to break the law in order to get rid of Paul. They're happy for the ends to justify the means. And isn't that so often the reality of the unjust world that we live in? But you know, at first, Festus seems like a breath of fresh air, doesn't he? He refuses their request to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, and as soon as he gets back to Caesarea, he opens Paul's case and brings him into the hearing. It seems that with Festus, someone is 
legally going to do the right thing for all. But how quickly things change. In verse 9, Festus wavers. He sees an opportunity to do the Jews a favor. He tries to send Paul back to Jerusalem. And it seems like the doors of injustice are again closing in around Paul. Two years he's been waiting for his just will, and now he's being thrown back to the lines. The world is an unjust place. Of course, we know that. Read a newspaper, watch the news, live your life, and you see injustice all around. And yet, isn't Luke taking almost special pains here to show us how Paul is personally undergoing injustice in these chapters? It's almost as if to tell us that we shouldn't be shocked or surprised if the same thing happens to us. world's an unjust place, Theophilus. Don't be spiritually rocked or emotionally devastated or paralyzed to respond if some of that injustice hits you personally. In fact, you can expect it at some point or another. Christians live in the world. And if the world's an unjust place, then at some point will experience injustice. Now maybe all this seems obvious. But I wonder, friend, have you ever questioned your belief in Christ when you've seen injustice in the world or experienced it in your own life? Has it ever rocked your certainty, leaving a strain of doubts rippling in its wake? Well, Luke here is trying to give us a more robust and realistic picture of discipleship, what it means to really follow Jesus. Creation groans under the weight of injustice, and believers will often join in that group. Now, is that cause to abandon belief in God? Certainly not. After all, the very cry of your heart for things to be made right, the very cry of your heart for justice, your, your very deep sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be, all of that inner groaning is a that you're made in the image of the living God. All of that is a sign that you're more than just a different matter in time and chance. All of that is a sign of God's reality. After all, if life were just atoms colliding into atoms, what sense would we have that things should be different after all? The strong would eat the weak, and that's how things would just be. We might not like it. We couldn't say it's unjust. We couldn't say it's not right. But friends, don't you see that injustice awakes in us? A deep echo of something that many of us have almost forgotten. When we see the injustice of the world in our heart cries out for something to be made right, it's a deep echo of something that we've almost forgotten. That this world God's. And God is a God of peace and justice. And as humans made in His image, we long for the world to be put right with Him. 
like Watchmen long for the morning. The Psalms once said, like Watchmen long for the morning, we long for God's kingdom to come in fullness. So Luke's reminding us that the world is an unjust place, not a reason to abandon faith in God, but a reminder that we will often groan under its weight. So don't let injustice surprise you or shake your faith. The second point we see here is this, that that in this unjust world, we are to pursue justice with integrity. Notice how Paul in verse 8 responds to the charges. It's quite simple and straightforward, isn't it? Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. He calmly, clearly, and with integrity declares what's right. You know, this is now the fourth time, as we said, that he's had to defend himself. This is the second time he's done it before this very same tribunal in Caesarea. But isn't it amazing that, again, with the same sort of composure and integrity, he lays out his case. And notice he's not just out to sort of win an argument or to save his skin. Look at verse 11. I mean, it's stunning. If I'm a wrongdoer, if I've done something that deserves death, then I'm willing to accept that sentence. He's perfectly willing to be justly tried and sentenced. He cares about justice. Paul cares about what's right. But he's also willing to pursue what's right through the means available. And so he appeals to see. Seeing that Festus is not going to judge his case with integrity, he uses the means available to him as a Roman citizen to try to get a fair shake, to try to get a fair trial. Second Caesar, he says, send him. Now notice what Paul isn't doing here as he appeals to Caesar. On the one hand, he's not simply resigning himself to the injustice around him. That could have been easy to do. He could have said, this must just be my fate. And given up. And gone to Jerusalem. And on the other hand, Paul wasn't kicking and screaming and raging, demanding his rights. He wasn't disrespecting all the authorities around him, Jewish or Roman. He wasn't seeking any way possible to get out from under this kangaroo court. I mean, after all, why not escape from jail if you're being unjustly held? Why not break out? Why not escape in why not pay the bribe if you're there under false accusations? Don't the ends justify the means? Has it all sense of justice utterly collapsed in this mockery of law? But no, Paul wasn't falling off either side of the cliff. He wasn't getting up, and he wasn't angrily using any means possible. Instead, he was pursuing justice. Now most of us tend to tip one way or the other, don't we? Some of us avoid conflict like the plague. I confess I often fall into that category. We passively accept our fate, never speaking up, never standing up. Maybe we even kind of dress it up with theological language. This must be the Lord's will. But that's not the example we see here, is it? Paul believes in God's sovereignty, oh yes, but he still acts in pursuit. 
But some of us avoid conflict. Some of us are fighters. And we'll do whatever it takes to stand up for what we think are our rights, even if it means playing the game and bending the truth and fighting fire with fire. And yet the example of Paul here shows us another way. A calmness, a confidence, a courage to pursue justice with integrity. But you know this way that Luke is sort of showing us in the Apostle Paul, pursuing justice, doing the right thing, doing it with integrity. It's hard, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I often feel more like Festus in this story than Paul. Festus starts out with really good intentions, not willing to be swayed. But when the pressure comes, when faced with a hard but clear decision to do the right thing, when the pressure comes, he caves. Look again at verse 9. He knows the case against Paul is not a leg to stand on. And yet he also sees that it would be advantageous to keep the Jerusalem authorities happy. Why not do them a favor and get started on the right foot, he thinks? Have they made life hard for his predecessor Felix? Have they gotten him fired? Why not be on their good side? Felix knows the right thing to do. And he wavers. And instead of pursuing justice with integrity, he gives in to pressure and fear. Haven't you been here? Festus drives his Paul back to Jerusalem, tries to run some favor with the local authorities, and Paul appeals to Caesar. And suddenly, Festus is in trouble. Because, as part of this appeal, Festus has to send a report to the capital as to why this case is coming to the emperor. And what's Festus going to say? Ah, uh, I wanted to do the Jewish council a bit of a favor because, you know, Nero, you know how difficult they can be. And Paul wouldn't go along with it, so he appealed to you. So, well, here he is, your problem now. Not exactly the kind of legal brief that's going to make Festus look incompetent. Clearly, that's not going to work. So Festus starts covering his tracks almost immediately. Look at verse 20. He says, well, I was at a loss how to investigate these things. That's why I wanted to send Paul back to Jerusalem. Really, physics? We know that was the real reason. You wanted to do the Jews a favor. Friends, haven't you been there? You cave under pressure, you don't do the right thing, and suddenly the consequences start unfolding. And you have to start weaving the story and backtracking covering up. And Festus is in a bigger pickle now than he was at Paul's hearing. He was afraid of catching the anger of the authorities in Jerusalem. Now he's about to face the wrath of Rome itself unless he can come up with a good story. Now what made these men so different? Paul and Festus? What gave Paul such courage while Festus caved? 
was it status or power that gave Paul the upper hand? Festus, after all, was a Roman governor, one of the highest seats in the empire. Paul was a traveling rabbi. What was it? What made Paul able to pursue justice with integrity while Festus wavered and caved of fear? That in an unjust world or war like Festus and Paul, you and I, our good intentions often give way under pressure and very little seems to happen. But there is an answer. There's one last thing that Luke wants us to see. And the last point here in chapter 25 is this that in this unjust world, That's the difference between Paul and Festus. One had come to see this truth with blazing clarity, and the other had not. Festus was probably a good Roman, and as a good Roman, you appeased the gods, and you did your best. Roman civic life was very pragmatic. Ah, but the God of the Bible was a different sort of God altogether. The God that Paul knew was the sovereign of all things, who was able to use even injustice to bring about his purpose. Think of God's history with his people. When Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, God was there for him. So put Joseph in Egypt and then into power and rest of his When Daniel was sent into exile by the Babylonians and he was thrown into a lion's den, there, God was working to exalt Daniel, put him in a position of authority and to broadcast throughout the Persian Empire as a result of that event, the greatness of Daniel's God. Or think of when Esther was taken from her family and put into the king's harem. Even there, God was working to make her the queen so that the right time she could advocate for her people and save them from destruction. This was the God that Paul knew. This is the God that Paul had now come to know. In a new way. You see, now Paul had come to know what all this mystery was pointing toward. Now he knew about the one who brought Israel's history to a surprising finality. Now Paul knew Jesus, God's very son. And Jesus, who was innocent in every way, was betrayed and was unjustly condemned by his own people and was crucified in a miscarriage of Roman justice. But in and through that most severe and blatant act of injustice, God just the And at the cross, God was carrying away our sin and our death in the death of Christ. And God demonstrated that fact by raising Jesus from the dead, overturning the just, unjust verdict that had been cast, 
and in overturning that verdict, bringing righteousness and life and vindication to all the believers. You see, this God that Paul knew was the God who worked out his just purpose in an unjust world, and now Paul had come to know this God, or better put to be known by this God in Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord. In verse 19, Festus recounts a little more of what Paul has said in his defense. Festus, a bit confused, says, It seemed to be all about a certain Jesus who was dead. Why was Paul able to pursue justice with integrity and not get into pressure or fear? And what will allow us to do the same? Because in the light of the resurrection of Jesus, our living King, we can know that no matter what happens, God is at work to bring about His just kingdom, even through injustice. And that means that the rulers of the nations are not beyond the control of the Lord of the universe. You know, as Paul was in prison in Caesarea, I wonder how often he remembered the words of Jesus that Ananias told him right after his conversion. Jesus said to him, Paul, you're a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, Paul's suffering wasn't in vain. It was for Jesus' sake. He was testifying to kings. Our passage ends with Agrippa, the Jewish king at the time, wanting to hear Paul, wanting to listen to what he has to say and hear the words of Jesus coming true, testifying to kings. And again, I wonder how often the words that Jesus spoke to Paul in prison in Jerusalem just two years earlier was comforting to Paul during those years in Caesarea. Take courage, Jesus. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. You must testify in Rome. No matter what happened, Paul knew that the Lord was in control, and that no matter what happened, he was going to testify to the grace of God in Christ. See, if you and Paul appeals to Caesar in our chapter here, it's more than just a last-ditch effort to try to save his skin. It was Paul realizing that the words of Jesus were coming true. This probably wasn't how Paul originally thought he was going to get there. He probably wasn't thinking that his trip to Rome would be in chains. But what Luke has been trying to show us through this whole section of Acts is that Paul's chains are the gospel's wings. Any injustice that he suffered only served to advance the gospel. And that gave Paul great reason, not only to worship Jesus as the Lord of Lords, but it gave him incredible courage not to cave or to waver in the face of injustice. The Lord is my helper, Psalm 118.6 says. What can man do to me? Whom shall I fear? Friends, if Christ died and rose again for me, for you, his resurrection proves that he's going to work out his just plan, even through injustice. What if we And you know, as that truth goes deep for us, just like it did for Paul, then we'll find that in the face of injustice, we don't need to avoid conflict and give in to passivity. 
Well, Father, the gospel actually give us, gives us the confidence to a people, as it were, like Paul. Because we know that we stand with the King who died and rose again, and whose just plan cannot be overthrown. Isn't that the confidence that we need? And at the same time, we need not fight fire with fire and use unjust means to fight injustice. The gospel gives us the courage to suffer. For the one who died and rose again stands with us. And his kingdom will advance even through suffering. There's the courage that we need. And here's why we can do the right thing even under pressure, even when it's hard, because no matter what trouble may come as a result, the risen Lord is working through to advance his kingdom in our lives and in the world. His kingdom of grace.
taking over. We'll have a good time with uh, just fellowshipping there. Uh, don't forget to come back tonight for our evening service. We're working our way uh, for the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, and Greg's going to pick up that tonight. Uh, let me end with a benediction from the book of Ephesians, a place where we've been landing much these days at the end of our service. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power of work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Friends, come